Hello and welcome to the new Circal HR Futures podcast. I'm delighted to welcome today our guest is Jim Kennedy, who is the Senior Vice President uh, of People Europe for Shinogi. Uh, which is a pharmaceutical company. We'll talk a bit about them in a moment. Today's podcast, along with the whole series, is brought to you in association with Kaplan Performance Academy, helping you meet your organisational development needs. So, Jim, welcome. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us this morning. Um, My first question is always very similar, which is just tell us a bit about the organisation that you're working in and, and your role. Hi, Kevin. Uh, really looking forward to uh, the conversation today. Uh, Shinogi. Uh, Shinogi Europe is a eight-year-old, currently 225-person pharmaceutical company. And we are the wholly owned subsidiary of Shinogi and Company Limited, which is a mid-sized pharmaceutical company based out of Japan. So whereas we are a relatively young and small organization, our parent company is very, very much larger. And it uh, also traces its history back over 140 years. So it's an interesting juxtaposition between tradition, culture, uh, and, uh, and, and outlook. So within Europe, we have currently businesses across the UK, Italy, Spain, now creating a new business in France. London is our operational headquarters. That's where most of our people are uh, uh, located, around about 125 uh, currently. And then uh, we have a small legal and fiscal headquarters in Amsterdam. That was our Brexit contingency, which we set up a a couple of years ago. Our parent company, it's about 5,000 people in total. And um, we also have a sister company in the US, uh, Shinogi Incorporated, which is about similar size to to us. So Shinogi in the US is a little bit older than we are, um, that we are and our American colleagues are part of Shinogi's overall strategy. Uh, as it um, takes its products to market globally. Okay, Jim. So uh, I'm interested in that. One of the things I wanted to pick up on is just sort of understanding what the product offering is uh, for uh, the, the, your, you know, how you operate and how you compete, what your specialism is. And then secondly, what, what the roles are, what type of people you've, you've got deployed across Europe. Is it just sure. sales and marketing sure. or have you got... Other, other other specialisms? Sure. In, in terms of the scientific focus within Shinogi, it's actually quite broad, quite general. It's it's relatively agnostic. We, we do not, for example, particularly specialise in one therapeutic area. There are various therapeutic areas which we will, we will pick up on, and that is sometimes determined or largely determined by what comes out of research and development. So looking at the legacy of our Japanese organization, it is in small molecule science, very, very high quality research and development from which certain compounds come forward. And then uh, Shinogi takes to market either directly or it licenses through other organizations. So with respect to what we have in Europe, the business is effectively bifurcated. 
So on one side of the business, it's what we call the, the global development function. So this is uh, regulatory, quality, uh, clinical operations, which is all part of the, the um, ongoing practical research that takes place when, when drugs are being tested prior to being commercialized or before they, they, they've got yeah. through the final regulatory hurdle. Um, and uh, clinical development, which is uh, making the medical studies in drug testing. Um, and then on the other side, it is commercial sales and marketing, but it's also uh, things like medical affairs about how we are helping to educate uh, healthcare practitioners and key opinion leaders and um, uh, market access. So it's so again, thinking through, particularly in Europe, which is uh, inevitably quite a complicated model because despite the European Union overlay, <laughs> each country has its own sets of regulations and market authorizations and licensing and, and, and so on. So um, market access becomes a, a, a really important part. Okay, and in terms of your role as being the SVP for for people, you know, I suppose what's the, the key areas of focus? What are the things that you're, you know, you're currently working on? What's your agenda for the organization? What we are in, involved in is very, very rapid, quite aggressive growth, both organically and potentially inorganically. So um, what we are, are currently doing is taking new product to market. Uh, these products are highly specialized. It's for the hospital sector. Uh, we are building a, effectively a new business right now. Uh, around these these new 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 drugs, and basically, as, as we are doing that, also looking for opportunities to enhance our product portfolio, um, whereby we can we can expand uh, quite rapidly um, and also accelerate towards profitability. So, as I said before. Um, Kevin, we are a relatively young organization, fully funded by Japanese parent. But now the expectation is that we, we become profitable as, as quickly as possible. So it's about growing the organization. It's about maintaining business continuity. It's about making sure that we've got the right people doing the right things at the right time. We are a relatively lean organization. So it's again, making sure that we've got the right talent profiles. Yeah. Um, and I would also say that a very big part of what, I, what, what I'm responsible for is the cultural stewardship of the, the, the organization. That's a really important part. That in Shinogi, we have people who come to us, stay with us because they like what we do, how we do it, what we stand for. So those kind of values and sense of purpose are um, tremendous bedrocks. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds like a great job and a, and a fascinating organization going through that. I mean, I think growth's really an exciting place to be, you know, particularly, you know, where you're, you're doing it both organically and, and, and trying to think about other uh, relationships and, and, and products, you know, it gives you the opportunity to scour presumably Europe and the world for talent, you know, build great teams, create a culture which is, you know, retains the heritage, but also is dynamic and, and galvanizes people and gives them their best. So 
I want to go back right to the beginning of your career now, though, Jim. You know, because one of the things, you know, there's a set uh, sort of process that we we go through in these podcasts. So I'm always interested in how people started. Um, and some of that is just because, you know, very few people, you know, when they leave university, they go, oh, I must go into HR. You know, many of us find our way accidentally. And some of those stories have always entertained me how, how people end up in HR. So I'm really interested in your story. You know, was it a conscious choice or was it something you fell into? And again, you know, you've been at it a bit like me for a for quite a number of years so if, if you absolutely even if you did fall into it accidentally yeah. why have you stayed so long i suppose i i was one of those people kevin who went through university not entirely clear what i would be doing after my university career um so as i approached the end of my time at university i started like a lot of other people looking at career options and that kind of thing and the more I looked across different different sectors and different job disciplines and, and, and career paths, I kept landing on this thing, which it wasn't called HR at the time, Kevin. Yeah, that yeah. hadn't been invented yet. Um, it, it was still called personnel management. And, and, and I, I kept landing on it and I kept being drawn back to it. I was, I was intrigued by it. Okay, so, so so what was it, going back all those years, what was it that intrigued you? What did you keep reading? Because, with because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I did not know what it was. So it kind of triggered some kind of curiosity. Right, what is this? So I, 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 I spoke to family and friends, and what is this thing called personal management? And for every person I asked, Kevin, I got a different answer except that what I thought I took from it was that, that, that personnel, or as is now human resources, what it's about is the stewardship of the people and the organization. And then if you kind of peel that back a little bit more, a company or an organization is actually just a kind of, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a construct. It doesn't exist. It's not a tactile thing that you can go and touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tactile piece is is the people, how people come together, how they combine, how they work together to to, to produce the product or the service or, or, or whatever. So in my very immature way as a 21-year-old, right, that's kind of what I, okay. I, I surmise. But the, the other thing that I, I kind of figured out and, and as it's proven to be, is that, okay, if, if personnel or HR means different things to different people, different organizations have different needs. So this kind of looks really interesting because here's a mm. career opportunity where there's the potential for a lot of variety, a lot of differences, uh, a lot of potential interest, but also the opportunity to make of it what I can make of it. Yeah, okay. And I'm, I've got a nice segue into the next question because I think it picks up on what you've just said, Jim, which is one of the things when I look at your career is you've worked in, I suppose there's a theme of sort of manufacturing. There's a product thing in there. But other than that, you've worked in quite different sectors. So you've worked in defence, you've worked in chemicals, you've now worked in... Uh, pharmaceuticals, 
medical devices, uh, contact lenses. So, so one of my great questions, and again, the people that often listen to these podcasts are people that aspire to be HR directors. They're normally already in HR. Um, and I think one of the things that, that I think is really quite interesting is that point you've made in that HR plays different roles within different organizations and focuses on different things. So tell us a bit about your, your, your take. You know, what's the same consistently? And what are the differences? So I'm really interested in the sort of compare and contrast of HR in different sectors. It, it, it's, it's a really curious question, isn't it? Because, again, back to that point, Kevin, that different organisations have different needs at different times. What I have looked for is the the, the interest for me in being in an, in an organisation that wants to do stuff and take things to a different place. Um, that's generally what I've, I've, I've pretty much aspired to, and that's where I've aimed to concentrate my, my, my career. So as you say, whether that's been in, in uh, medical devices, now pharma, or whether it was in diversified industrials or, or whatever, um, it's been the opportunity to get involved in an organization that is really focused on performance and really working extraordinarily hard across all the, the, the pieces of the organization to take things to a new level. So uh, that's given me a really fantastic opportunity to have worked in organizations which some have been very high margin businesses, some have been very low margin, some have been growth, some have been about transformation, reinventing themselves. And mm. But collectively, it really kind of boils down to this, okay, what are we going to be doing? What's that going to look like? And how are we going to make that successful? Okay, so so you look for those opportunities. You look for where there's a a real strong performance culture. You look for an organisation that's trying to do something. It's trying to grow or yeah, and, and then to, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and um, certainly with 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 organisations like Shinogi and previously my, my my time at Cooper Vision, which are very very purpose driven um, and very mm. powerful set of common values or shared values within the organization. I think being part of something where, where there's a real sense of purpose is, yeah, for me, it's been very motivating. Well, it certainly helps out with our work, doesn't it? If there's a, an overriding sense of purpose, which you can touch and feel, and it enables you to, you know, align mm. a culture, align performance to, you know, to, for, for, yeah. for, for, to deliver something which is more than just, you know, bottom line performance. You know, it's Correct. something that makes a difference Correct. in people's lives. Um, I want to take us off, as always, I do jump around a little bit, Jim, so I do apologise, but I want to sort of pick up a sort of a topical thing, you know, as we're recording this, where I don't know how many lockdowns we're in, but I think we're in lockdown three. So obviously, um, I'm really interested in how organisations have coped with this because it's been a, a really difficult period. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, but, so that's one bit. But the second bit's the important bit. The bit I'm really interested in is, is what do you think the organisation has learned? What have you learned? What's the organisation learned? Potentially, what do you think you're going to do differently as a consequence of it? So I'm interested in to know 
you know what you've done i'm sure you've been everyone's been working at home and doing everything that we've all been doing but yeah you know every organization's had different different challenges and made different responses so tell us a bit about how you've responded to to covid19 um we've we're quite lucky as an organization because we've got quite a few medics including vaccinologists and uh, we've, we've also got um, people who are very very familiar with um, virus well yeah viruses yeah. so actually that that has been hugely beneficial because what we did as covid was kind of coming to the fore in in early 2020 was that we organized a, a an action team a leadership action team around it and thinking about what actually might happen with all of this um and the medics were able to tell us well sometimes this is how viruses work and they mutate so we might have a lockdown and then things might recover a bit and then we might be back into this kind of scenario and all the rest of it so what we were able to do is to start building that into our thinking um but but at a practical level what we also did was to move very very quickly because certain the the, the vast majority of our people are office based and those people who are not office based are, are in the field so we don't have manufacturing we don't have distribution mm. we don't have call centers we don't have key workers so what we were able to say to people right from the get-go is look if you don't want to commute if you do not want to travel internationally if you do not want to be in a situation where you feel underconfident about your environment that's fine we'll, we, we've got the technology we've got webex which is our alternative to zoom and and, and so on um we'll work it work it that way and and of course that that was a tremendous fillip for our employees because our staff said okay leadership is 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 providing due care and consideration so that really kind of just cemented that relationship of trust between us all when we went into lockdown italy was actually a couple of three weeks ahead of us and we learned a huge amount from what went on in, 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 in Italy. So again, that, that kind of fed into the mix. And then going into lockdown, what we, 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 we did was to say, this is now about mission control. So let's make sure that we know what we uh, need to achieve as a business, make sure that those objectives are cascaded down through the organization. Let's make sure that everybody has line of sight so that as we do work remotely, we've got a high degree of confidence that people know what they're doing and know that what they're doing is having the right kind of contribution. What we also did was to say presenteeism, the nine to five mentality, no, that's, that's gone. And, and then it was about um, encouraging managers who actually didn't need very much encouragement at all, was speak to your people, whether it's teams or individually, find out how people are getting on, where the pinch points might be, and, and what we also say, Kevin, to people is, look, if you are experiencing any difficulties, whether that's because you are in a small apartment or whether it's because you've got childcare responsibilities or whatever it might be, just have the, just 
let us know and give us the opportunity to respond to that. And, and that's how we've, we've, we've taken things on. Um, and then layering in additional training, um, we, we also adopted a policy of over-communication. So from leadership, we, we also wanted bottom-up communication. We put in place a whole uh, kind of procedure, if you like, of, of skip sessions. Skip sessions are non-agenda-driven conversations hosted by one of the higher-ups. But somebody like you, Kevin, is a higher-up. Mm-hmm. You've got people on a call, and you say, right, what do you want to talk about? How can I help? Yeah. So so we, we put all of these things in place. We put in uh, Yammer um, so that we had an alternative to the, the coffee station um, as best as possible. Yammer still doesn't mm-hmm. quite do you know the, the, the conversation, the impromptu conversation that you have when you go fix a cup of coffee in the office and yeah, catch it yeah. up with colleagues from different, different parts of the business. So um, all of these things have been, I think, relatively successful. Uh, the feedback from our employees has been very good. Um, by the way, one of the other things that, that, that we picked up pretty quickly is the potential impact on people's well-being. So we did some pulse surveys around, around that, um, try and figure out what was going on and how people were feeling and, and, and what to attend to. I, I mean, that in itself has been really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, but honestly, look, I kind of feel that when you have something to respond to, work is relatively easy. Yeah. I'll tell you what I'm really interested in, Jim. It sounds like you, you know, you've done lots of really sensible, logical things and yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've iterated it and modified it, and you know, because it's been a bit of a, a longer period than we all hoped it would be. I suppose the question I'm really interested in is, what do you think the organisations learn from it, and what will be different? I mean, I saw this week um, two things. I suppose just sparked my sort of uh, my antenna in the last couple of days. One is Unilever saying no one has to come back to the office. It's down to you. You individualisation of how you work and when you work and out you know very very open very flexible and i've seen the irish government have made a statement today that they are going to create a right for people to work at home which is you know you know i always get i always wary when governments start to intervene in this stuff because they tend to you know just legislate and regulate without thinking through how it works differently in different sectors and different businesses but you know also i can say things are going to be different jim so i suppose you know what's the learning and what do you think is going to be different for your business I, th- I think the key, the, the, the key thing which it has really cemented is that relationship of trust. So when you mm-hmm. have that um, situation where as, as a manager or as an employee that you, you, you are comfortable and confident in the relationship that you have with your colleagues, that despite the circumstances, you have the capability to get stuff done, you're going to get stuff done. Now, Looking at it, we've had a phenomenally successful business year so far. And that's despite all of these circumstances. And and an awful lot of it is is just simply because of the amount of goodwill that's been generated between 
people, regardless of what their job is, regardless of their status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel that that is really going to be the catalyst for the future. So the point I would first of all make, Kevin, I, you want to jump in here. I do want to jump. I know you got me going now. So, so I think the first thing is, the first point is that what we've been doing over the last nine months, not just us at Shinogi, but everybody else, is we've been responding. It's a short, it's here and now, what do we need to do? As I say, there's a relative ease with that because we know what we're, we're dealing with. The harder question is, where are we going? What's that going to look like? And that's the question you're asking. So for me, it's, it's, it's looking at a potential landscape, which I think has become even more opaque than it was before. And what I think it also does is, is, is to say, you know what, an awful lot of the paradigms or the beliefs or the, the myths even of how we did work previously, I think an awful lot of that has just now gone out the window. Because exactly as you said, Kevin, people are not going to want to come back to offices five days a week. They're not going to want to do the nine to five. Private life and work life has blended much more. Um, so I think that, that the future is, is, is also is thinking about what the nature of work is and how that, that's organized and how that's set up. It's also what the role of the office is. And, and the office moves from somewhere that people sit at desks to do email to meeting spaces for creativity, for innovation, for uh, problem solving, for decision making, for, precisely. And that, um, so I think that's going to be a big, big shift for us. Um, but I also think what it does is in, inform us about what we really need from leaders. Yeah. And I think that as far as the, 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 the leader piece is, we want leaders who are competent at what they do and are honest about what they do and they're honest with, with their colleagues. Yeah. Because those are the two attributes that people, more than anything else, want, to, want from the people that they work for and work yeah. with. So that's now my job to and my team's job is to figure out what else we can do to to build that leadership capability around those principles. No, I, I think I think you're spot on. The, I think you're in the right direction, Jim. I mean, I think I think the thing around trust is hugely important, and I think that's been driven by managers being, you know, caring and listening and spending time with their people. And then following through on what they've said, you know, if they said, you know, if you've got childcare problems, if you can't do your work in your normal hours and you're going to fit it in another time, well, that's fine. Well, you know, you then have to then live that and breathe it and deliver it and support that people. And I think that's what we've seen is I think we've seen some authentic leadership where businesses have recognized that they've got to trust people. You know, you've got to let people get on and work and, and find what works for them. You know, we manage the output and the outcome, not all the inputs. And so I think there's a shift. You know, it, it, it may have been quite stark for some managers. And I know lots of organisations where some leaders have actually taken to this and loved it and it's been brilliant. And others which have found it more difficult because they're just used to working with their team in close proximity to them. So, 
you know, I think we've got to find a way of supporting leaders and managers through this journey. But there is yeah, something really I, quite I, powerful. I, I, I completely agree, and and I think I think the biggest challenge is going to be if we are going to be experiencing further lockdowns, further restrictions, and about social distancing, and and it probably is set for quite some time to come. Um, but how do how are we going to compensate for the lack of social interaction for those moments, for those times when when having people in a room working on a problem together is key? Um, how do we overcome the the, the, the challenges of, um, of of that? And I think there's another challenge that we, we we've got to wrestle down as well, which is in so taking our example. Since since March April, we've recruited into the organisation over seventy people. Much of that has been done entirely virtually, and it's been amazing. It's been fantastic. Um, even to the extent that feedback from from these people is that this is the best onboarding I've ever experienced. <laughs> but we've done a great job in hiring great people. But my concern is because they don't have that social interaction, because they're not in the office, they're now, we don't have those same opportunities for vicarious learning. People don't see what's going on in the office. They don't hear the casual conversations. They haven't got somebody that they can just turn around to and tap on the shoulder. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? So it, 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 that there are these inhibitions or constraints upon those people's development, how they integrate themselves into the organization, how they build their political networks within the organization, how they build their organization knowledge. And I think it also impacts people that we would regard as being, let's say, the high potentials, because it's the same situation. Mm. But that how do we give them the same opportunities to develop on the job? when we're in this yeah. virtual yeah. virtual world. So I think they, these are the bigger problems now, and there are no particular answers. There, there, there could be any number of answers, and that's one of the great opportunities because it, it's, it's, it's a real chance to, to, to be super creative and see what we can come up with. And I think probably, again, to answer your question, I think it's a preparedness, Kevin, to try stuff and see. And if it doesn't work, move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, I seem to spend a lot of my time talking about agile in HR and people go, well, what is that? And I go, well, in reality, you you co-create stuff. You get people in rooms, you ask them to work stuff up. They come up with a minimal viable view of what this might be and you try it and then you learn from it and you keep going. It's an iterative, you know, and there's something in that for us, isn't there, about how we develop people solutions, you know, so you get a group of... Yeah. There, there, there is so so but 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 also thinking about the future of work that if if the employment proposition is is going to be fundamentally based on give me the flexibility give me the flexibility that allows me to keep the best of that private life work life blend that gives me the opportunity to flex my hours that gives me the opportunity to um choose to a certain extent when I come to the office and when I work remotely. Mm. So one of the things that we're going to have to 
think how do we accommodate that whilst at the same time helping other people overcome the mental constructs that we have to be in an office and we have to be doing this and it has to look like that because i think one of you know as, as i reflect on things i think as much as we've done some really really good things in my opinion um one of the things that we still do is we insist that if we're having a a, a, a video conference we start at the top of the air and we finish at the top of the air now if you're doing that meeting in the office you're you're instantly into office time aren't you because at the end of one meeting what you do is you take a bio break and you go to the coffee station and you get you have a couple of minutes chat with whomever who, who's there mm -hmm. and you go back in you've had a break but in this virtual world it's back-to-back -back video conferences and it is apps it's a different way of working and it is absolutely bloody knackering why do we do this why do we it, it's we've simply transposed old working yeah, yeah, yeah. we have we have yeah so that yeah, needs I, to be challenged. I, yeah, there's loads of opportunities and loads of challenges. And I think those, you know, that one about those two audiences, you know, high potentials and um, early in their career and also potentially, you know, those people that have joined and have had a great onboarding experience, but haven't got that organizational learning and haven't really understood the political frameworks and stuff. I think there's a wonderful opportunity to to think about how we do that and and do it differently and, and you know let's be honest there will be a time when we do start you know coming back into work environments i think differently where we do collaborate and you know the ideal scenario i think for human beings is, is is a is a mixture isn't it it's always a balance and a blend you know you what we find with people management all the time is actually you don't want you know you don't want a predominant view you want something which is blended to the organization and to the individuals that work within it um, but I'm going to move us on, Jim, because I thought that was a really interesting conversation and I, and I enjoyed it. And there's lots of stuff that you said, which I think is going to resonate. Um, tell me about, let, let's go look into your career. Let's think about things that, you know, you're really proud of, things where you've, you know, you can look back and go, that made a difference. You know, we did that intervention, I led that, or we changed this. And, and actually, it, it made a significant impact on performance or culture or how people worked or whatever it may be. But I'm always interested in looking at, you know, great stories, things that have gone well so that other people can uh, think and reflect and, and, and think about whether it would work for them. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the thing which I feel particularly proud of uh, amongst, amongst quite a few things that I, I think actually that was a pretty decent job. Um, so going back uh, to my uh, days at Cooper Vision, so that was the company I was working with before, before Shinogi. Um, Cooper Vision had grown up quite rapidly through a lot of acquisitions, and the way in which the company had approached those acquisitions was to, to, to effectively buy product or technology or both, and then kind of a, create a... a, a quite a tight federation of, of, of organizations, but didn't really do anything around any cultural re-engineering. And uh, it, it made a, a very significant um, acquisition in 2005. And even by uh, 2009, 2010, it, we were still experiencing some of the 
the impact of effectively feeling like we were two organizations uh, internally from, from a cultural perspective. And we're a global organization, we're rapidly growing and it becomes more and more evident that actually we are um, not helping ourselves. So between at a leadership level, what we decided to do was to take a very comprehensive review of what we understood ourselves to be, but also understand what our customers perceived and then work out where we were going to go from there. But basically what that told us was that actually we were all over the map. Mm-hmm. That that we, we stood for different things and that our customers had different perspectives. And actually quite a number of our customers said, the proposition we have from you is, is we're, we're confused. You're a bunch of good guys and we love working with you, but it's totally confusing. And the other epiphany was that, that the way in which we went to market was that we were effectively doing what the 800 pound gorillas were doing in that marketplace. So we were not really genuinely differentiating ourselves. So then it was a case of, right, we're going to rebrand. And with the rebranding, we are going to re-engineer our culture. So it was an inside out, outside in activity. And then from an HR perspective, it was working very, very closely with, with, with colleagues right across the business to say, right, what is the red thread that brings us all together that we all share in common? It was about identifying our core common values. And the way in which we did that was, was through a lot of extensive research with our own people and also testing that in the marketplace with, with some of our, our key customers. So the values that we came back with to the organization with were those kind of things which people could easily resonate with because they themselves had contributed to their uh, uh, identifying and articulating them. And then again, from an HR point of view, it was making sure that all of our programs, all of our activities, that, that the words matched up with the activities. And we reiterated it and communications programs and, and, and the whole nine yards and testing it and testing it and testing it and testing it. The, the, the effect that all of this had was uh, just a, an incredible explosion of energy, enthusiasm for this effectively new coal. And that trickled very quickly into our business performance. Our growth accelerated by by one and a half times. Uh, so revenue growth, profitability growth, uh, share price growth, and and as that momentum took place, the the the, the business performance accelerated and accelerated and accelerated. So the question, I, I, it's a fantastic story, and, and and again, I think there are many organisations that go through these types of things and I, I my instinct is half work and half don't you know yours clearly did deliver were there any things that you had to do that you went through the way there were some you know some real symbolic things that you needed to change that you thought other you know there would be a group of people that want to hang on to this uh, but we need to 
in light of what we're trying to create and what we've articulated, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to put some things on the altar because I'm a great believer in, you know, you check, you take people with you, but when you're changing something, it doesn't all go, you know, smoothly according to, to the, the plan or the, the sets of values. There are times when you have to go, we're going to just have to crack something here because sometimes cracking the, the egg is what what creates and releases the energy and the, the human because yeah, they, they want to see that yeah. you've done it for real yeah I, I i think i think one of the the, the eggs that we had to crack was, was the initial skepticism i would mm -hmm. not say it's a negative skepticism but just a healthy skepticism from a number of senior leaders across the organization so this is the level down from the the, the, the senior senior leadership team that they needed to be convinced about what we're doing why we're doing it and what was going to be different because critically they've got a role in this it has to be moved through them and to the next level and so on and so on and the way we cracked that was was the first time in the company's history was to gather all of those leaders in one room which we didn't in, a, in, a, in the basement of a hotel in san francisco and we had over 100 people in that room and we spent three days together going through really concentrating why are we doing this the what's the easy bit right but explaining the why giving the rationale and giving people a sense of what the outcome was going to be and 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 part of the way in which we unlocked that was to make sure that we were mixing people up so whether you were from Puerto Rico manufacturing or whether you were from Germany commercial, we got those guys talking with each other. They would never normally have that opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. But what we wanted to do was to really make sure that we got a mix, that we introduced people from across the organization cross-functionally. And what that did was really to, to, to demonstrate that actually for all of the differences that people have, either because of the, their, their national background, cultural background, their job discipline, level of tenure within the organization or whatever, it was actually the things that we have in common are far, far, far greater. And I think that was a huge epiphany for, for a lot of people that, that the commonality that we shared is a damn sight more powerful. So why the hell are we spending all this time talking about country differences, regional differences? Different. It doesn't work like this in manufacturing. It doesn't work like that in, my, in distribution. All those kind of typical daily arguments and conversations that we in HR have about why things cannot happen. So once we kind of dispersed all of that mythology, it was, it, it was um, plain sailing. Sounds fantastic. Sounds a great, you know, it sounds like something you should be proud of and something that you you should talk about because again, those those experiences are hugely important and and in the history and lifetime of organizations are, you know, sometimes they're the tipping point, you know, one of those inflection points which make a huge difference and release the energy and deliver the growth and the, the, the um, uh, superior performance. We're going to take a break now. We'll be back in for the second part of our podcast with Jim Kennedy. Uh, we will be back in 30 seconds. Please stick with us and we'll talk a bit more about the HR profession. We'll talk a bit more about uh, Jim the man and uh, I'm sure it'll be as informative as the first part. Uh. 
As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, Sircal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like? And how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Sircal experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit sircal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Sircal's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today. Welcome back to the second part of the HR Futures podcast brought to you by Sircam in association with Kaplan Performance Academy. With me today is Jim Kennedy, who is the FSVP, Senior Vice President for People Europe for Shinogi. Um, we had a great conversation in the first half of the podcast. Uh, I recommend that you listen to it. We talked about change management. We talked about um, a whole host of things in relation to uh, COVID-19 and and what his business has learned and what they're going to do differently. Jim, what I'd like to do now is, I mean, we talked a bit about um, what you've done well and what you're proud of. I mean, when we look back at our careers, there's always things we think, well, I learned a lot from that. That didn't go quite according to plan. Is there is there a one or two things that you can think of which are, you know, really good learning experiences, which often means I'm not going to do it that way again? Ah, uh, gosh, what a question. Um, do you know what? I I don't think I've particularly reflected on those things. It's kind of um, what I learned to do in my early career was, was, was to get over the self-flagellation. It's, it's that my, my, uh, my philosophy is if you've made a mistake, it's you are where you are. Right. What are you going to do next? And, mm. and, and, and I think the key the key learning for me, I suppose, in, in, in my career is that if, if, if something has not gone quite right or has gone horrendously wrong, it, look, it's, it's what's going to single you out and how you're going to be perceived by others is what you do next. It's not necessarily what's happened. What, what's going to make the difference is what you do to react to that. Yeah. I, I suppose it's also about a secondary thing, which is just not making the same mistake again. So it's logging it and saying, yeah. well, if I ever happen to get be in a similar situation, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so tell me, one of the things that I know we get when we, we get feedback from people is one of the questions that I tend to ask a lot is about, you know, the thing about HR, there's millions of different things we can do. You know, we can change reward mechanisms, we can spend time working on performance or succession plans and talent attraction, and and it goes on and on and on. You know, one of the things I'm really interested in is how do you decide what to focus on in your people strategy or plan and what you're going to leave, you know, what are you not going to do? Because I think I see HR functions that are just overloaded. They're trying to do too much, trying to change too many things at once. And I think it's always about choice and prioritization. So I'm interested in how you go about that. Uh, it, it, it is tied to the business. So it, it's an awful lot of conversations with, with peers and with the boss and um, bringing my uh, colleagues, my HR colleagues into those conversations as much as possible as well and encouraging them to have conversations with their uh, their the, the customers within the business, and and you're exactly right. There is a trade-off. There's only so much time, um, and it's 
really getting focused in on the things that we agree we believe are going to make the right kind of difference at the time. So for sure, I mean, I think one of the the, the, the consequences of that is that there is a trade-off because you're right, Kevin, you, you can only do certain things and you can't do the whole thing. Don't boil the ocean or try to boil the ocean. But what we've also got to remember is, look, if we, if we decide we're going to change the comp program, that's going to have consequences in other areas. Mm -hmm. And it's understanding how things connect with other parts so that, okay, I'm not spinning the talent management plate right now, but I'm changing my comp program. I know that this is going to have an impact. And I've got the experience now to have a sense of what I think those possible outcomes might be, in which case, we start taking one or two contingencies and we start having those conversations. So there's a little bit of heading off at the past, but also giving people that comfort that, yeah, this is where it could go. And if that's what happens, this is what we'll do about it. Okay. So let's try and keep it all joined up. I like the thing about aligning it to the business. I like the thing about engaging leaders in the conversation, making the trade-offs, thinking about the consequences and how this stuff fits together, I think is, is important. Um, I'm going to sort of move us on to talk about rather than your career and your organisations, a bit about the profession, I suppose. Um, and there's two sort of questions. Let's do the first one. The first one, I suppose, is what do you think? You know, I think we've made great progress. I mean, we've known each other for years and I think the HR community profession has moved on. I think we've matured. I think we've learned a lot. I think we're adding more value. But I still think there's a way to go. And I'm interested in your view about um you know what do we need to improve to up our game to get to the next level to add more value you know across the piece rather than specific within your company again it's 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 a a huge question um huge question i i think hr has made a lot of progress It, it that's definitely true and i also think that actually hr has made a lot of I, I think it's kind of moved away in, in, from what it, it could be doing and how it could be doing and how it could be contributing. And what and I don't think that that has been positive at all. Um, but where the opportunity for HR, I think, continues to be is what is it that as an organisation we're trying to do? Where are we trying to get to? how can I help that conversation? How can I make sure that I understand what the organization's requirements are? How do I make sure that I am able to fully understand without having done another person's job, what my CEO is driving at and what's motivating him in one direction as opposed to another direction? So it's building out that sense of the whole organization rather than HR for HR's sake. Um, And I think we've got those expectations on us from our colleagues across the business. I know I certainly have it from from my chief operating officer, also my my, my chief executive. Um, We can get so consumed by what we understand to be our discipline, HR, that sometimes we can lose sight of what's what's going on around us. 
and we can yeah. think we're doing a good job. Yeah. And then you get a tap on the shoulder saying, what are you doing? Where is this taking us? How does this add value? How does this take the organization forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to those, you know, before we do stuff, it's asking ourselves those questions in our head, you know, why are we doing it? What difference did it make and how would we measure it? And if, and if you've gone through that from and asked yourself that from a business perspective, I think, you know, you're likely not to go off and just do HR things for the sake of HR. You will be. Um, I, th I, think actually, yeah. I think that's the point. Any, any prescription we give is not because we've lifted it from some book or we've yeah. learned about it because that's what the organization down the road has done. It's, it's, it's exactly that. It's understanding how this is going to help us and, and move our organization forward. Okay. Um, same, along the same lines, I'm interested in HR. So young person, I don't know, perhaps a graduate, mm. perhaps, you know, second job, thinking about a career in HR comes to you and says, you know, look, I'm, you know, I might be thinking about sales, marketing, other, other business disciplines, but I have got an interest, a curiosity perhaps around HR, and they come to you to get your view, you know, what's your take, you know, what's your, how would you, what advice would you give them about whether to, to embark on an HR career or to, to work in a different uh, part of organisations? What do you want from your career? What is it that you, that interests you about HR? And and I think the, the 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 other thing is that in addition to what we've already talked about about different organisations having different needs, different and different approaches being applied at different times, is that HR is really a very broad church. You've got really quite a number of specialisms within there and then you've got the generalists who just about know enough about those specialisms to be dangerous but and and that's part of our job right it's but it, it but it what do you want from your career what kind of organization do you want to work for um and then think about okay this is my kind of personality type. These are kind of my career uh, aspirations. Which aspect of HR is going to fulfill those or, or likely to fulfill those? And I think the other thing is, is to be prepared to give it a go. And if it doesn't quite work out for you, go try something else. I think one of the, 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 the great things about HR is transferability. So if it's not if this organization is not right for you, there will be another one. Um, so I think that willingness to, uh, to, to, to experiment uh, is, is, is really key. And I think the other piece of advice that I, I would give people is that there's a lovely phrase, Kevin, isn't there, that it's, it's, it's about how you dance in the rain. Again, it, so, so there's two aspects to that for, for me. The, the, the first is go make things happen. Go do stuff. Go try it. You'll never find out otherwise. But it's also significant about resilience because HR is an incredibly complex field. And the reason that it's complex is because you're dealing with people. And there is nothing more complicated. 
than human beings absolutely that's what makes it uh, that's what makes it so fascinating isn't it really i think if you and you and know, that's what, exactly and and that's what can make it so incredibly fulfilling as well yeah but i like that you know how you dance in the rain i think is good i, th I think there's something in that you know you know it's about how you deal with adversity and you know the, the jobs that we do uh, of trying to influence encourage challenge um you know get organizations to behave differently and individuals to do different things is 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 incredibly difficult and and at times and complex and uh, but incredibly rewarding perhaps more rewarding than others you know I, I, I think so and 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 i think as you were talking about that and going back to the the, the people complexity one of the ways in which i think people starting out in the profession can, can quickly make their mark is make it simple for your internal customers. So forget all the jargon. Can you take the HR language and vocabulary and translate that into plain English? Because if you can, I promise you, you're going to make friends very, very quickly and people are going to seek you out very, very quickly because they'll want to work with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think HR people have got to be business people first. You've got to be able to understand the wants, desires, requirements of your customers, you know, what they, what they want to happen, the type of people they want around them, the team they want to build. And you've got to, you know, establish credibility by, you know, making things happen, by doing some of the things that are going to move them on that journey. And if you do that, you build a relationship and you add some value and they keep coming back, don't they, Jim? That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to finish off this um, podcast, Jim, by, by talking a little bit about uh, you, the person. So one of the things that I think is, is, is important and customary in these podcasts is we talk about people's careers. We talk about their views on our profession. We talk about all sorts of things in relation to their business life. But what I'm always interested in is just getting a little bit of a handle and a little insight into what people uh, do outside of work, what their passions are. So, you know, for you, Jim, what, what, what are your passions outside of work? Is it music, sport, literature, family, travel? I mean, the point is that well, the world it, that we live in. There's an eclectic list, and, and I suppose there's parts of all of those things. But, yeah, I mean, having a life outside of work is incredibly important. So I suppose that's another piece of advice that we could we could give, particularly to people coming into the HR profession or, or indeed into, into the world of work, is make sure that as best as possible you give yourself a life outside. So for me, the life outside is um, I... I I, I really enjoy my my wine. I have a a nice little collection, um, um, which doesn't seem to stick around. It kind of bottles tend to get opened, but um, I I I play golf uh, or I try to play golf, and and I really really enjoy that because it just takes me completely away from everything else, and that's that that's just. A, a few hours on on a Saturday or, or or a Sunday, when we're not in lockdown, where mm -hmm. I can just concentrate on 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 doing that. Um, but yeah, going back to the point, Kevin, is that, that that 
I, I think somebody told me years ago that have have three legs in your life and you, you, you have a really good platform. So you have your work, you have your family and friends, and then you have your pastimes. Yeah, uh, most so, probably so, not bad yeah. advice, is it? I think it's pretty good. It's a stable platform, yeah. Yeah, and so tell me about your your, your wines. Are there a particular region, or a, is it red and white that you you like? Or well, one one of the things that I was very fortunate to do when when I was with Cooper Vision, I spent I was living in California for for, for for a period, so I took the opportunity to go and explore the California wine country, mm -hmm. and I picked up. Um, various bottles and, and, and that kind of stuff whilst I was out there. So there are one or two wineries that I particularly like, and uh, I have a preference for red wine over white wine. My I have a, a membership of a wine society, which has is, is just been fantastic because it just encourages me to go and experiment, go and try different things. Mm. So... Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I really quite enjoy that. It's, so, so give us a recommendation then. Give us a, a, a Californian red that you think that people should try. If you can get it, Ridge. Okay. Ridge. So uh, a Ridge Zinfandel or a Ridge uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. And why, are they, why is it so good? Try it and you'll find out. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, thanks for spending the time with us, Jim. It's been a great conversation. Uh, I, I've enjoyed your take, um, particularly stuff about COVID I thought was great. The stuff about the change programme at Cooper uh, Vision was uh, excellent. I think there's lots of nuggets for people. Thank you for spending the time. We really do appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kevin.